Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have someone that I have a lot of respect for. In fact, one of the founders that I would say that has helped in really developing the ecosystem of entrepreneurship here in in New York. So without further ado, Josh Abramson, welcome on board today. Thank you. So you you've been around the block quite a few times. So let me ask you this: How many companies have you built and exited by now? Um, well, it depends how you quantify that, I suppose, but, um, you know, we've had a couple of very small exits and then some larger ones. Um, but the two primary businesses that, um, I've sold the, the first was Connected Ventures, which was the parent company that, um, started collegehumor.com, bustedtees.com and Vimeo. Um, and then most recently, uh, so my business T public. So those are the, the, the major ones. Um, and then you know, we started some businesses when we were in college that, um, you know, we sold for very small amounts of money, but, you know, material at the time. But, um, but yeah, those are the big ones. Got it. So I guess going back in time a little bit here, Josh, how did you get the entrepreneurial bug? So it really started, um, I, I went to college and I was, um, you know, my first couple months of school, I had had a, a job, um, I actually played the piano in a, like a restaurant and a country club when I was in high school. And I made pretty good money doing that. And when I moved to, um, you know, away to college, I didn't have that job anymore. So I was at this place where I, you know, I needed to make money if I wanted to, you know, go out and have drinks with my friends or do anything really. So, um, it was really out of necessity of, you know, I didn't want to go get a, a traditional job, um, working at the campus bookstore or whatever else, you know, other friends of mine were doing and, and, you know, started thinking about ways to, uh, to use the internet to make money. And, and that was really as simple as that. Um, and I had a, 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 my best friend from growing up, um, went to Wake Forest and I went to University of Richmond. So we were a couple miles, a couple, um, hours apart by car. And we, you know, just started, you know, going through a list of ideas for, you know, how could we make money on the internet? And, you know, we were super young. We didn't really know what we were doing. And, um, there weren't, you know, nearly as many sort of, um, you know, people to look up to in this space, um, uh, role models because it just hadn't been around for that long. So, um, so the idea that we ultimately settled on was college humor.com, you know, in the early, you know, at that point it was, 
um, you know, late nineties, um, there were no places online that, um, you would go, I mean, there were a couple, but there, there was no YouTube, there was no Facebook, there was no place where people just sort of congregated to share comedy or funny pictures and videos. So, um, the original idea was, you know, simply to, to aggregate all of that, put it on a website and sell ads. Um, so that was, that was how College Humor was born. Got it. And this was with uh, Ricky Van Bean? Is it, That's is correct. This Got it. Yep. And how, how, how did you guys meet again? We were friends. We met actually in, in sixth grade. Um, he lent me a, a video, a VHS cassette tape of uh, a SNL um, you know, episode that he had taped because I didn't have cable or something at the time. <laughs> that was, that right. was how we met. Really cool. Really cool. So with the uh, college humor, the, the business model was really with, with ads. Is that, is that how you guys were monetizing? Correct. And, um, you know, in the early days before the first dot com sort of crash, um, it was very easy to make money on advertising because there were so many venture funded sort of ad networks out there that all you needed to do was really just drop a line of code into your website and then a banner ad would pop up and you would get paid, you know, a couple of dollars CPM for every page fee that you could generate. So we would optimize our site to just, you know, in a way to make it really more difficult to use just to optimize for, for more paid views. Um, and then, you know, somewhere around, you know, 2001 that changed and, you know, that money all dried up. And as a result, we had to think about how do we actually generate revenue with this audience that we have. And we were still a couple of years away from figuring out how to sell, you know, branded ad campaigns to, you know, companies like Toyota and Coca-Cola. So we were focused on more, ROI generating, you know, affiliate revenue type of models. So, you know, testing out, selling things on Amazon, um, selling posters, selling, you know, t-shirts um, for other, you know, t-shirt companies. And that was sort of what led us to ultimately start uh, our first t-shirt company, which was Busted Tees, um, in part because we were making so much money selling other people's t-shirts that we thought, well, why don't we just start our own t-shirt website and we'll make more money. Um, and then we can also get other websites to, you know, sort of promote us. Um, and that was, you know, at that point in time, we were making more money from selling t-shirts than we were from ads that eventually shifted, um, as we figured out the ad business, but, you know, it wasn't, wasn't, um, super obvious to us how that worked as college kids. Uh, it. so, it, you know, it took a bit of time and we'll, we'll get that. We'll get into busted teas and, and Vimeo in just a little bit, but what were initially some of the, uh, because at this time, how old were you when you, when you guys started with, uh, with Ricky? College I was Humor? 18. You were 18. So what were some of these strategies that you guys did uh, to really kickstart the growth initially? So, you know, it was super scrappy and, and we were, um, I mean, the, the first bit of traffic that we got for College Humor, I literally, um, you know, printed up a couple funny pictures on flyers and just put the you know, web address, collegehumor.com underneath them and hung them over urinals in the, the boys, you know, dorm at uh, University of Richmond. And then, you know, I would watch our traffic logs and saw over the next couple of days that more and more people were going to College Humor. Now, also keep in mind that, you know, it was, it was a bit more novel in 1999 to see a, a funny picture with like a, a website address um, than it might seem today. Um, but that was really how we got started. And then you know, that worked well. And then I drove to some of the schools, other schools in Virginia and just plastered the campus with flyers. And then next thing you know, we're getting a lot of traffic from all these Virginia schools. And then I started sending, like literally FedExing envelopes of flyers with, you know, funny pictures on them to, um, to friends at other schools. And then we started a campus rep program and 
um, would send people T-shirts if they would, you know, put flyers up. And, you know, it, it, again, in 1999, that, that worked, believe it or not. And, um, and then next thing you know, we're sort of, you know, growing virally. Um, and, uh, and it happened pretty quickly. Um, again, it was, you know, a point in time where, um, you know, in 1999, if you started college that year, there's a good chance that, you know, your senior year in high school, you didn't have high speed internet. And then all of a sudden you're put into a dorm room where you're sitting in front of a computer all day with high speed internet. And it, you know, um, sort of you know, people's behavior around that was, was really interesting and, and just seeing it for the first time. Um, so everybody was kind of sitting at their computer, like bored, like trying to find, you know, ways to, to waste time. And um, so I think we were, you know, at the right moment in time for that to sort of take off um, the way it did. Got it. And, and you know, it's interesting that, that you mentioned going viral, you know, and, and, and just obviously now what we understand as going viral is, is going through all these different social media platforms. But at the time, it, they, they were not there. So I guess, or, or not as much as we see them today. So what did going viral back then in the late 90s look like? Yeah, so I mean, you know, when I first got to college and really where the idea for collegehumor.com came from is, you know, we were, um, everybody would have like a folder on their desktop with funny pictures and videos. And all of my friends, my freshman year of college, we would literally go from one room to the next and be like, oh, you got to check out what John's got on his computer. You know, he's got all these funny pictures of this thing or whatever. He's got this funny video that he just downloaded. Um, so it was, it was very much like, um, you know, you would just go look at other people's computers and then um, really the primary way that people were sharing things at that moment where it was email, um, people were just emailing and, and instant messenger, um, back when everybody had AOL instant messenger on their desktops. So, um, so yeah, it was just people, you know, sharing links. Um, yeah, really yeah. cool. I mean, it, it's interesting now that, that we see this like so far away, you know, even though it was like not, not so long ago, but, but anyhow, before you turn 18, you actually, uh, or yeah, you actually turned down $9 million. And uh, what happened here? So we started College Humor very quickly. We started to generate real revenue, um, you know, certainly by college student standards. And that summer, we had an offer um, to buy the business for $9 million. But it was, you know, it, it sounds better than it was. It was a lot of stock. There was a, you know, a decent amount of cash. But as we did the math and we looked at what, you know, how that company was thinking about the acquisition, they were trying to aggregate a lot of, you know, what we call now digital media businesses. But I didn't know what, you know, I'd never heard the term digital media business until many years later, honestly. Nice. So, you know, content websites, I think is what we called them back then. And, um, and you know, the idea was that they would aggregate them and then sell ads across all of them. Not a completely new idea or something that's you know, people can understand today, but um but the way that they were modeling it and, and valuing these businesses was completely unreasonable. Um, sort of, you know, if you fast forward to today, they were basing it off of, you know, those early, um, you know, early 2000, late nineties um, ad rates. So we just looked at it. And fortunately I had um, a father who, you know, had been a mentor and, and uh, was a mentor and has continued to be, but um, you know, I had some more, sophisticated people that understood business kind of look at it with me. And, and we ultimately came to the conclusion that, um, you know, if, if those rates were real and we were going to continue to make that kind of money on our ad rates, then we would, you know, make that same amount of money in cash flow in the coming years, regardless. Um, and if it was wrong, 
then that company was going to go out of business because they wouldn't be able to sustain, you know, having bought all these businesses at these valuations. And uh, sure enough, you know, the latter is is what actually happened. And, and they went out of business a couple of years later. So we wouldn't have seen a, a big chunk of that money. And, you know, of course, we didn't end up um, making those ad rates ourselves either. So we sort of had to, you know, recalibrate how we were thinking about the business. Got it. I mean, it's it's really amazing because 18 years old and turning down 9 million. I mean, it's a, it's unbelievable, you know, like yeah, obviously yeah. then you look towards the future and yes, you know, things unfolded, you know, the, the way and, and, and really telling you that you made the right decision, but, but wow. What's funny is that actually, I, I was just cleaning out my desk the other day cause I just sold my business and I, I didn't, um, I, I left the company and I, I have a couple sort of relics from those old days. And one of the you know few things that has stayed with me in my file cabinet is the original offer from that company. Um, and I just remember getting it. Yeah. I literally went and like showed my mom, you know, I was 18, <laughs> still like living at home. And uh, I can remember very vividly just that feeling of, of you know, getting that. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. And then, and then after this, uh, you added Jacob and then also SAC and you moved to San Francisco before settling in, in New York city. So why did you change your mind and, and ended up coming here to New York? So we actually moved to San Diego, um, not San Francisco. San Francisco maybe would have been a different yeah, San Diego, experience. Sorry. But yeah. yeah, so San Diego, um, at that point in time, I didn't have any, you know, idea of, you know, what it took to build a business. I didn't know, um, you know, I didn't realize the benefit of being in a place like New York in terms of, you know, the other people that you would meet and be able to collaborate with and, and hire. Um, so we moved to San Diego, not thinking, oh, we're going to like, hire all these people and build out this big company. We just figured, you know, well, we're running this thing. It's four of us at this point and we can do it from anywhere. So why not go to the most, you know, at the time we thought, you know, what's a better place to live in San Diego. The weather's perfect every day. We can live on the beach. And, um, and then we got there and about a month after we were there, we realized that it wasn't the right environment for us. You know, maybe I would like to go to San Diego to retire one day, but as a young person trying to build a business, I think there are probably better places to do that. Um, you know, certainly for the type of business we were trying to build. So, um, shortly after, you know, within the first year we decided we were going to move to New York. And then, um, I think the good thing about being in a place like San Diego for us was that, you know, we were just living and working together and, you know, hundred hour weeks, you know, nonstop just, and it didn't feel like work in a way because we were just like hanging out with our, our, you know, we were best friends and, and, um, it's like every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we're sitting together, we're talking about the business. And um, it was, you know, it was fun because it was growing and it was working. Um, but then we moved to New York and it was like everything just sort of, you know, took off um, like a rocket ship almost immediately. Just the, the level of people that we met almost, you know, right away. And the, um, you know, just the, the relationships that we met. And, you know, I think we were in New York for like six months before we had a New Yorker article written about our business, which then, led to us meeting, you know, all, um, all kinds of people. And ultimately, you know, the people who, um, introduced us to, you know, Barry Diller, who then bought our company. So, you know, moving to New York was like a huge inflection point for us. Got it. And, and you were, you were talking about perhaps San Diego not being the right place to, to, to really build a business at the point. I mean, was the trigger that you guys were looking at expanding the team and perhaps on the recruiting, you found challenges or what would you say was the trigger that that started to incubate the thought of, of, of perhaps moving to New York? I think, you know, something about the type of people that are drawn to New York for, you know, better or for worse are, are people who are 
you know, highly ambitious, um, you know, hardworking people who are, you know, trying to, to do something um, interesting with their lives. And not to say that people in San Diego are, you know, trying to do something interesting too. It's just a different, you know, pace. And I think, you know, coming to New York and sort of getting um, just the, the level of conversations that we found ourselves having, you know, every every night that we went out to a bar or, you know, we're having dinner with people, you know, you just sort of, um, you know, I guess I was craving interaction with other entrepreneurs and people who were trying to solve similar problems to myself. And I think, you know, certainly throughout my career, I've, I've learned so much from uh, other people and who have, you know, done it before and, and um, you know, trying to understand how to, you know, how to build out an ad sales team when you've never done that before. Um, you know, you can like kind of try and feel your way through it, or you can talk just to one person who has done it before. And in like yeah. an hour, probably learn, you know, what would have otherwise taken you years, maybe if you hadn't, um, if you hadn't talked to somebody who had more experience there. So I think there were a lot of those types of moments where, you know, just meeting the right person at the right time. And, and those sort of, you know, uh, serendipitous interactions happen all the time in New York. And um, it was just harder to find those in San Diego. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And and one thing that I'm very jealous of you from an experienced perspective is that when you guys moved to New York, you guys were all living and working in the same apartment there in, in Tribeca and perhaps partying too. Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, I, I'm often nostalgic for those days, even though I love having my own apartment with my wife and kids now. Um, but those were, you know, pretty, pretty fun moments. I mean, you know, we were, you know, people, we would go out and people would just assume we were a band because I think we all kind of dressed the same and <laughs> kind of, you know, looked the same and, um, and would, uh, you know, just had like a lot of energy in those days. And, and we also, because we were four guys living together and we were able to write off the cost of our apartment because it was our office, um, we got a, you know, 5,000 square foot apartment, which, um, you know, on a per person basis, you know, after tax or whatever, however you want to look at it, it was not that expensive but people would come over and they would think that we were already these like multimillionaires because we were living in this beautiful apartment. And I think it's, it's funny how, you know, the whole like fake it till you make it phrase is a cliche, but I, I think that it's, there's something to it. And, you know, people would just come over and I can remember us having meetings with, you know, um, everyone from, you know, movie executives to agents to, you know, you name it. And they would come over and it's just funny how, you know, when you're 23, people don't necessarily want to take you seriously. Um, certainly back then, I think today, maybe people are a little more used to it. Um, but you know, you bring someone into your, you know, Tribeca loft and all of a sudden, um, the, the conversation's a bit more serious. So there was a lot of, you know, funny benefits that we, um, were able to take advantage of just, just being in the city and, and being together and, and having that apartment. Yeah. I mean, and it was an almost 5,000 square foot apartment. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's amazing. So, you know, I can imagine that they probably saw the beer pong going on, but then the size of the space and they're like, okay, let's get serious with this guy. <laughs> exactly. So, so during this time, uh, Vimeo was born. Is that right? Yep. That's right. So what, what was the kind of like the incubation process of Vimeo? Sure. So you know, we really had this approach in those days of, um, you know, we weren't, I was never sold on college humor being the business that was going to, you know, sort of define me and define us as a company. And, and, um, you know, we, we were always trying to 
you know, get involved in new things. And, um, and, you know, so when someone would have an idea for something or, um, you know, a side project, we would frequently just kind of, you know, give it a little more gas. And um, Vimeo was my uh, business partner, Jake Lodwick's invention. I mean, he really was, I think he like locked himself in a room for like a weekend and just came out and showed me the first version of Vimeo, which actually was quite different than the Vimeo that you see today. Um, the, the original version of Vimeo was, um, the idea was, you know, flip cameras and, and just inexpensive cameras that you could fit in your pocket were becoming a thing. This is before smartphones, but um, but it was clear that we were sort of moving in this direction where everybody was going to be carrying a camera that could take video. And, um, and my partner, Jake, was one of the first people who was making, you know, sort of video blogs and putting them online. And um, and at that point in time, the only way that you could upload a video to the Internet, you know, you basically had to be an engineer or some a very tech savvy person to be able to do that. Um, there was no obviously there were, this is before YouTube. So the idea was originally like, let's create something that allows for anybody to upload a video and then share it with their friends and family. And, and the first iteration of that was really, we thought that people were going to be taking very short video clips because that was sort of, you know, what the flip cams were uh, encouraging you to do. And just sort of the way that we thought people were going to do it is maybe take these like 10, 15 second videos. And then Vimeo would automatically string them together and kind of make a movie and very similar to what, um, snap did or what Instagram stories looks like. Um, and then shortly after that, it, it shifted a bit into what, um, you know, Vimeo looks like today, which is, you know, in, individual videos that, um, are uploaded and, you know, still shared. Um, but, you know, I, I think part of what makes Vimeo today feel uh, a little bit more premium than maybe YouTube, um, and a little more you know, focused around actual creators is, is really, um, derivative of, of those early days because, you know, Jacob was a creator. We were all making videos in our office and in our lives. And, you know, a lot of our friends in New York were, you know, making films and, and the, the first community of people that were on Vimeo, um, were all just, you know, enthusiasts for, for web video and, and people who were, were trying to, you know, make cool stuff. And I think that over the years, um, the, the community that is built around that um, is really, you know, in many ways, a function of, of those early days. Um, but, you know, it, it was a, it was very much a side project. Got it. And this was before YouTube, no? Correct. So we launched um, Vimeo, I believe it was December 2004. And YouTube, I think, was January of 2005. So it was very close. And I can remember in the early days when, you know, we used to use Alexa to, uh, to track the, you know, the, the web traffic of our, our different businesses. And I can remember when Vimeo and YouTube were, you know, neck and neck. And, um, I made the decision, um, we started seeing people upload, you know, clips from the daily show or, you know, things that they didn't make. And we put a lot of, um, a lot of things in place to try to avoid that. So, you know, eliminating, um, making it so that the clips had to be, uh, you know, a certain, it couldn't be over a certain length because people were just uploading like half hour TV shows and, and all sorts of stuff to make it um, so that people were just uploading videos that they made themselves. And in doing that, we didn't see, I certainly didn't see the opportunity that, that the YouTube guys saw in, in creating what YouTube would ultimately become. Because I think, um, you know, we were really focused on the personal, you know, sharing aspects of it. And, um, 
and as a result, you know, YouTube became YouTube very quickly. And we sort of, I can remember the, the moment when it was clear to me that we had maybe missed something was when the, uh, the lazy Sunday SNL video went viral. And, um, and that was really what brought YouTube up with it. Um, it's just, you know, that was like the biggest internet video of all time at that moment. And, um, and I think, you know, we just, it became clear, okay, well now, you know, people are going to be uploading this. We're not going to be able to compete with a business like college humor because, you know, we're doing this ourselves. It's a couple people in a room, whereas YouTube is just going to get all of this content much faster because of the network of people that are contributing. Um, and, uh, so that was, you know, late 2005, I guess. And, um, right. and, you know, sort of, I think my enthusiasm for the Vimeo business for the next couple of years was always sort of, you know, I think, uh, tainted a bit just because I, I, I think I was, I felt like we'd maybe just lost, uh, that, you know, that war and, and we'd sort of missed an opportunity, um, and didn't quite see, you know, Vimeo coming out on the other side, the way that it ultimately did. Got it. Got it. No, I mean, look at the end of the day, you can't, you can't win them all. Right. So, that's uh, right. Yeah. So, so I have to ask you this, what was this thing called a big shocker? <laughs> so the big shocker was the first thing that we ever sold online. And, um, my business partner, Ricky had the idea for it. It was just like meant to be a fun, like a funny gag. It was a foam finger, um, like, you know, people would take to sporting events, but it was in the shape of the shocker, which is, you know, a obscene hand gesture, which was popular with college kids at the time and we we literally got a design patent on it and we started selling them and um and it was it was pretty crazy i mean we were selling you know thousands and thousands of them they cost us like a dollar to make we sold them for i think 12 bucks and i had like a full garage full of them and um and it was uh you know seeing how that worked and understanding sort of you know customer acquisition for the first time and and um and just seeing how quickly sales could be generated if you had a hit product is what got me really excited to build busted tees and, and, you know, what led to us getting into the t-shirt business. Um, and, you know, we continued selling those for years. I mean, you know, they don't exist anymore, but it was, it was, a a pretty, um, you know, yep. important moment for us actually. Got it. Because busted tees was the, the um, latest uh, business that you launched no, with, with, with these guys. Is, is, that, is that the last uh, initiative? Yeah, so Busted Tees went live sometime in, you know, I think, the spring of 2004. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, you know, we continued to launch some other things. But, yeah, those are the, the three main ones. Got it. And, and, and you did not raise outside financing, like the traditional path of, hey, let's get some VC, let's scale this up. So, so walk me through that process of, I mean, you guys were financing this yourselves. That's right. I mean, you know, there are two things that I think are worth noting. I mean, first of all, we didn't have any employees in the early days. So we were just, you know, we were paying ourselves based on what the business was earning, but there was no, um, you know, office overhead. We didn't have, you know, anything really that we were spending money on. Um, so the, the need for capital didn't seem super obvious to us. And, and then the other part of it is, you know, I think venture capital is just in the sort of cultural fabric of, of our country now. I mean, I think people 
know the names of you know famous venture capitalists in a way that I certainly didn't when I was in college. And um, and you know you've got you know uh, VCs that are blogging, and you've got you know TechCrunch, and you know all these different publications that are talking about you know raising money, and you know companies like Uber that are in the news every day, and people are talking about you know, how much money they raise. And, you know, none of that was happening in those days. And I'm sure that if you were in, you know, Silicon Valley or you worked in, in tech, maybe you were aware of it, but as a college kid, like none of that was on our radar at all. And the idea of raising money was like as foreign to me as, you know, if you had told me like, you know, raising money seemed as crazy as like having an IPO or something, you know, it was just such a, um, a foreign distant idea that it, we never even pursued it. And then by the time we moved to New York and started to meet, you know, people like Fred Wilson or, you know, other, um, you know, venture capitalists, um, we, uh, you know, were already at a point where the business was quite profitable and um, didn't see the need to raise additional capital. Um, you know, and I think in, in many ways we were right to do that. I think, you know, you could make an argument that we probably should have uh, raised money for Vimeo um, earlier, and that would have led to a better outcome for us as founders. But you know, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. And frankly, um, you know, when we did first start meeting with VCs around Vimeo, which was you know, call it two thousand five, two thousand six, before we sold the business, um, there was you know, there wasn't any interest. So I think um, you know, there the the hurdle to get over to get a deal. Um, you know, in those days, I think was much higher and, you know, you didn't have the seed funds and the the smaller guys and there, there's weren't as many options where I think, you know, if you um, looked at, you know, where Vimeo was in 2005 and sort of our team that we had, and I think if we were going out to try and raise money in New York City today, it would probably take, you know, seven hours to, to pull a, a decent round together. But, you know, it's just a very different time. Yeah, no, understood, understood. And what happened with MTV, Josh? With MTV, um, yeah. as far as which part, us almost getting acquired, but not. Well, I guess so because uh, yeah. there is uh, at one point you guys decide that it makes sense to to start exploring what's possible, right? And and yeah. I guess those conversations start with MTV, and you know, obviously we'll we'll get into IAC in a little bit. But what happened there with MTV? Sure. So you know, we we had a moment where um, I think I mentioned earlier that. You know, we had this New Yorker article that came out, and um, and shortly after that, we you know had everybody calling. It seemed every literary agent. We had you know movie studios, television studios, um, media companies. It felt like every week we were meeting somebody that we you know only read about before, and it was crazy to us that we were even like in the same room as them. And um, and you know some of those people uh, you know from MTV started calling, and we um, you know next thing you know we're getting flown down to the VMAs in Miami and we're meeting with, you know, all the senior people at MTV. And it was a very, you know, heady experience um, for all of us. And um, they said that they were interested in buying the company. So we went down that path. We did several months of due diligence, um, which I'd never done before. And it was, you know, a huge distraction, huge amount of time spent on the deal. And then, you know, we sort of got left at the altar. I mean, we thought that we had a deal. We thought it was going to be, you know, a done deal. And um, I you know, told my friends and family we're selling the business to MTV. And then, um, which knowing what I know now, it was premature for me to be doing that. I just didn't know any better. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, they, they ultimately decided they didn't want to buy the business. And I was extremely disappointed. 
Um, and then we started, you know, pursuing other options. And um, fortunately, the business was, you know, I think we were operating at like a 50% net margin at that time. So, you know, we were, um, we were, we were doing very well as, as a business and there was no urgency uh, or shortage of people that were interested in working with us. But, you know, we just, you know, MTP was not <laughs> was not the the partner for us in the end. Um, and shortly after that is when we met Barry Diller, and um, and he had just launched um, a programming division of IEC to go out and, and attempt to you know buy and, and build um, you know, media properties, um, digital media. And uh, you know nine months later, we um, we had a deal to sell fifty one percent of the business to uh, to IEC. Nice. So how how was the process with like how walk us through like what is the process of of the deal with IAC? What what was that process? So we we met um, met a couple people over there and um, they gave us a term sheet. We sort of you know agreed to the major terms. Um, it took us a while to get you know a long form document together. So you know I think I mean it literally took nine months between when we first started um, the conversation and had a deal. Um, which, you know, seemed like, you know, a lifetime to me back then. And, um, it was actually also, you know, very stressful just because, you know, that, that first deal, I think for any entrepreneur is, is so emotional and so impactful in terms of, you know, sort of changing your um, life trajectory in, in many ways. So, you know, in all of those moments when I thought it was going to fall apart and there were many of those moments, um, I can just remember, you know, just feeling so anxious and, and, um, and just, you know, forgetting to eat dinner or whatever, you know, just so focused on, on trying to get it done. Um, yeah. and then, you know, uh, then one day, you know, it was done. <laughs> and how, and how big was your company at that point? So it was still pretty small. Um, I think, you know, we did, uh, six or $7 million in revenue that year and had about 15 employees. Um, so, but we were on a pretty, you know, uh, steep growth trajectory, but it was, you know, it was pretty early. I think, um, you know, at the time that seemed huge to me, I think, um, you know, we probably could have waited a little longer to do a deal and it would have been to our benefit, but, you know, we were, um, part of the, the reason that the IC deal seemed compelling to me at the time was, you know, this idea that, you know, they're, they're not buying the entire company. We're still going to have a lot of skin in the game. And if things go, you know, really well, then, um, you know, we'll make a lot of money on the, the other half. And if things don't go well, um, you know, then at least we sold half. And I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, I've always had this sort of, you know, imposter syndrome of feeling like, all right, like this, I just got really lucky. Like this thing's not going to last forever. Like I need to like, you know, move quickly because, um, you know, the world's changing so fast and, you know, just always feeling very anxious about, you know, the success of the thing. And I think, you know, for us or for me, the deal at that time just sort of, you know, uh, was in part just feeling like a risk mitigation because I was just so nervous that, you know, this amazing thing that we built was just going to like go away one day. Yeah. And I believe the, um, the terms of the transaction are public. Is that right? I don't know if they're technically public, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's been reported. It was say around forty-one million, something like that. That was actually the, the although you know both of the deals were pretty similar. Uh, my first deal, and my second deal, but forty-one is the 
number on the nose for the, uh, the the company that I just sold to public, which is public. Um, that was announced because it. Um, got it. Got it. So they were similar. So so what were your biggest learnings from this transaction with AIC, with IAC? I think you know. Look, I have a lot of respect for the people that I see. And I think there are certain people who work really well in that type of corporate environment. I don't think I'm necessarily one of them. And I think, um, you know, doing a transaction where you are selling half of your business and you still own the other half, but you no longer control. I mean, we sold 51%. So I still own 49% with my co-founders and, um, you know, it's, it's hugely meaningful. It's, you know, half of your net worth, um, as a, you know, assuming it's your first deal, which it was for us. Um, but you no longer control it. And when things get a little rough, um, you know, it, it wasn't smooth sailing for the entirety of the five years that I was there. And, you know, when there's disagreements, it's, it's very emotional and you don't have the final say. And I think, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to be in a situation like that again, or I won't be in a situation like that where I'm, you know, um, sort of stuck somewhere having to, you know, work for, for many years in a, in a, you know, framework that maybe isn't like, you know, most well-suited to me. Um, but I didn't really have a choice and, um, and I, you know, I don't regret that deal at all. I mean, I think it was a really good deal for us and, and I learned a lot from those guys. Um, and, and like I said, I have a lot of respect for them, but it was, um, you know, it was, it was difficult. It was, you know, uh, you know, I was, I was ill-equipped to deal with the, you know, operating requirements of a entity of a public company from a, you know, FP&A and financial perspective. I, mean, I can remember going into like some of our early update meetings, um, with the, you know, office of the chairman and, and, you know, getting asked financial questions and, you know, people using terms, I didn't even know what they meant, you know, cause we'd never, we'd never even really had, um, you know, built out a model before. I mean, we were just kind of, you know, running it off the cuff and, um, and, you know, that changed really quickly, but it was, um, you know, as I said, it was painful at times. Yeah. So then, so then you basically, um, decided it's time to, to move on. You buy busted teas and eventually this leads to, to tea public. Is that right? That's right. So when I, you know, the, again, the three businesses that we sold, I see were college humor, busted teas and Vimeo. Um, and when I was leaving, I see it had been five years and, um, they were not interested in, you know, retaining ownership of the busted teas business. Um, so I was able to buy it as I was leaving and I think everybody was, you know, pleased with the way that that ended. Um, and I wasn't necessarily so eager to, you know, jump back into the busted teas business and, and turn that into something. But I liked the idea of being an entrepreneur again and, and being my own boss and not having to answer to a, you know, anyone else and, and, um, and hoping that in doing that, I would over time figure something else out. And after the first year or two of just owning that business and, and growing it, um, quite a bit, uh, I had brought on, um, a general manager to help me with the business. And, um, and I had the idea for, um, what ultimately became T public, which, you know, as we were thinking about the, the busted T's business and sort of how that could grow. Um, at a certain point, you know, if you're just a straightforward kind of web 1.0 e-commerce website where you're just selling a product um, in a pretty straightforward retail type of way, um, 
especially when it's a low price point item, you you reach a, a brick wall with a lot of your customer acquisition channels. You know, you just can't spend another dollar profitably. And we got to that point with Busted Tees and just realized that it was never going to be a huge business. Um, you know, it was maybe we could, you know, stay at $10 million a year in revenue, but we were never going to get to 20 or 50 or 100. Um, so the idea for Public was, you know, instead of us just coming up with the ideas for these t-shirts on our own, what if we tried to tap into the, you know, the global design community and, and gave them a, a platform that they could upload their original designs and, um, you know, we would handle all the production and printing and customer service and, um, and they would help with, you know, marketing and we would pay them, you know, a huge portion of, um, you know, 20% of revenue. Um, and that turned out to be a much better business and, um, and ultimately, you know, proved to be the, the, the primary focus of, of what I've worked on for the past, uh, eight years. Got it. And with T public, you didn't raise any money. That's correct. So, um, you know, I, I bought the T public business, um, from IAC for, you know, sort of a nominal amount of money. I, I had, um, you know, some employment agreement that is basically a, a way for me to extract some of my unvested stock and that sort of thing. So it was a good deal for me. Uh, I was, a, you know, and they got the price that they wanted, but it, it wasn't a lot of cash out of pocket. Um, but what I bought was a profitable business. It was, it was making, you know, the day I left, I see I was making more money um, from the t-shirt business that I now own than I had been making from my salary and, and bonus and everything. So I was able to, you know, I now had this profitable business and, um, and as we wanted to start other ideas and other businesses, um, you know, the plan was just to fund it out of cash flow. So, um, so we did that and, and then, you know, the first couple hundred thousand dollars that we needed to spend, you know, just came out of cash flow. And then, um, you know, the business started to generate revenue on its own and we sort of just continued to grow organically. And I think, you know, for me personally, not to say that I'm opposed from, you know, taking venture uh, with future businesses, but I think for businesses like the T public business, which I, I was never, you know, a hundred percent sure how big of a business it was going to be. Um, and I think, you know, once you take venture, you're sort of signing up for either a huge business or a zero, because I think it's, it's really hard to navigate, um, you know, the waters with a business that's sort of in the middle murky area where you've raised money and there's sort of this expectation from your investors to have a, a you know, high return on their capital. And, um, my feeling was, you know, if I can, um, you know, grow maybe a little bit slower and organically and, you know, with our own sort of cash flow, um, then I'm sort of preserving the largest number of potential positive outcomes for the business. You know, if it doesn't grow and scale the way that we hope it will, and it's a, you know, cash flow generating business that supports my lifestyle and I enjoy running it, that's a good outcome. Um, or if it does what it ultimately did do and it grows, you know, to you know, $40 million in revenue and with a very high uh, profit margin, then we can sell it. Um, that's a great outcome too. Um, but also, you know, selling a business for $41 million when you haven't taken venture capital is an awesome outcome. I, I think for me, it certainly was, um, you know, if we had taken on a venture, it would have been, a, you know, maybe a disappointing outcome for investors. And, and, um, I think the, the bar that one needs to get over for a successful venture funded exit is obviously much higher. Um, and I think it's, 
frankly, it's a lot easier to build a company worth $40 million than it is to build a company worth $400 million. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really interesting that that you took this route, especially because at the same time you were a venture partner with Firstmark, which is That's a right, yeah. very big VC firm, you know, a VC firm that has invested in the likes of like, I don't know, Pinterest and a bunch of other really successful companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, um, you know, I've learned a lot from those guys as well. And I think, you know, uh, I, I started um, hanging out with them really before it was clear to me that T Public was going to be my focus. I had started working on it, but um, was really just interested in looking at other businesses with them and, um, and trying to find out like what my next project was going to be. And, um, and it was sort of during that time when I was going to their Monday meetings and sort of you know, spending more time, you know, meeting with companies that the T public business started to take off. And, um, I turned my attention back to that and, and less on investing. Got it. Got it. So T public was acquired by Redbubble, and this was announced a few months ago. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Really cool. And uh, now I guess, are you going to be moving on or are you going to be staying for a while? So I stayed uh, stayed with the company through the end of the year. So we closed our transaction in the, the first week of November, and um, it was always agreed that I would I would just stay for the holiday season. And then my CLO and co-founder in the tea public business, um, who I had hired to be my GM when I bought back Busted Teas, um, he became the CEO the day that we closed the transaction. And um, you know, just given the the way that the company was um, structured in, in my equity position, um, the idea that I was going to continue to be excited to work anywhere um, after you know going from owning you know a, a very large you know piece of the business to to owning none of it, um, you know, just wasn't ever really going to work for me. And I think I've also had the experience of, of doing this once before, where you know I I really enjoy being an entrepreneur and working for myself and, and sort of setting my own ambition level on a project. And, um, yeah. I don't work as well in, you know, the, you know, a different, uh, paradigm where it, it's sort of coming from someone else. Um, so, you know, knowing all of that and, uh, it was, it was clear that that was the right decision for me. Um, so, so yeah, so as of, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, I'm officially unemployed. <laughs> Officially, and I'm sure happily, no, because uh, it's a uh, remarkable what you have done, and and you obviously have uh, other projects going on. You co-founded this company called The Loyalist as well, and obviously you're not active, but you know, obviously still a lot of projects going on. But do you have an idea of what the future is going to hold for for Josh? Not exactly. I mean, I think you know, I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around you know what the framework will look like for future projects. I think you know the truth is that. The only time I started something from, you know, absolute zero um, with with nothing was College Humor. And everything I've built since then is really derivative of that. And I've, I've always had um, a team of people that I can lean on to help me accomplish things, um, you know, from, you know, obviously Vimeo and Busted Tees and then T Public, we had the Busted Tees team to help us get that off the ground. So um, so going and, and stepping outside of that and then just sitting in a, a, an office by myself um, with with nobody to work with is, you know, uh, the idea of starting a company from scratch is daunting. So trying to, um, you know, just wrap my head around that and, and sort of, you know, what areas are of interest. I have 
interests, you know, across a, a wide spectrum of businesses. So um, in some ways that makes it more challenging because I feel like I have this like giant white sheet of paper in front of me with, you know, uh, not even sure where to put my pencil down to start. So, um, so it's a little intimidating. It's also exciting. Um, uh, you know, I think the loyalist um, business is an example is, you know, something that I, I helped incubate and, and, um, you know, was the first investor in the business and continue to, you know, work closely with them day to day, but I'm not, you know, I don't work out of their office and I'm not the CEO of that business, um, by any means. So, um, having opportunities like that, or, you know, being able to be a, a major investor in something while also having some operational responsibilities or, or some operational role, but without actually being the CEO, um, is, is interesting. And, you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll, you know, have an idea for something that I want to, you know, I'm excited to build, but, um, but it could be years before that happens. I realize these things are, um, you know, typically, you know, a lot of serendipitous moments, you know, is what ultimately turns into, uh, you know, a business or deciding to go down the path of something. So, so yeah, I'm just sort of, you know, keeping my eyes open and, and, um, you know, going to take my time. Got it. Got it. Well, that's good. That's good. And I wanted to ask you here, and, and this is a question that I always ask when, when we're getting towards the end of, of, of our time here with guests. If you had the chance, and I know that this is not possible, Josh, but if you had the chance to go back in time and to speak with, with that Josh that was 18 years old before getting started with, with this journey of building and scaling companies, what would be that one piece of advice that you would give yourself about business? About my specific business or just business in general? Business in general. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I, I guess the the thing that I learned over time that wasn't clear to me initially, and I probably would have had more success faster had I thought about it this way, was was really you know this idea of you know, trying to make your job boring as a CEO and, and, you know, trying to, you know, as soon as you have an opportunity to delegate something to someone else so that you can focus on the next thing, I think that, um, that's a, a good thing to do. And I was very reluctant to hire people in the beginning because I was, I was so cheap and I didn't want to spend the money. And I was thinking about it all wrong. I wasn't thinking about it as a, you know, as an investment and, and, you know, being able to scale my own productivity by having great people, um, on my team, um, which ultimately is what, you know, created all the success that I've had, I think is just having great people on our team. So, you know, obviously, um, uh, I think, you know, we hired pretty well from the beginning. So I, I, I think that fortunately came intuitively to me, but I think the the pace at which I hired was probably a little slower than it should have been. Got it. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say, hi, Josh? Um, it's a great question um, because I'm, I'm, my email address is about to change. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, DM me on Twitter or Instagram. <laughs> great. And what's your, what, what are your handles? Uh, just Josh Abramson. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Josh. It has been an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.